0: Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast, where we're all about commander data and dad jokes. I'm Joey Schultz, and I'm joined by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he'd like to wave, wave goodbye, goodbye. It's Matt Morgan. Joey,
1: what is the worst thing you can hear your surgeon say during the operation? Anything.
0: I don't want to be awake during an operation. <laughs> okay,
1: yeah, literally anything was the answer, but also uh, second or first runner-up, I should say, is a uh, nurse. Pull up the YouTube again.
0: <laughs> oh! 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 This is just all—all all bad. Oh, no. All of that's bad, Th- I, of that's I bad. I
1: don't know any of this from experience, so please, please <laughs> don't think I had something go go wrong. YouTube, um, everything is just <laughs> fine. It's just a joke. Just a
0: joke. All right. Um, up next, he has craft with cards with craft. It's Dana Roach. Uh, why don't snowmen wear deodorant?
2: Oh no, why? what's the point to them everything smells like carrots
0: (laughs) yeah an appropriately winter themed joke data (laughs) i like that um less horrifying than what matt was putting me through so i appreciate yeah
1: (laughs) joey that my joke kills at anesthesiologist
0: (laughs) just like that doctor it is their favorite (laughs) how many of those conventions are you going to matt this feels weird still (laughs) still zero still zero Oh, right. uh, Lordy, Lord. Matt, what are we talking about in this week's episode?
1: <laughs> well, this week we're going to talk about uh, some popular cards that we just happen to not be playing in our own given decks. Maybe cards that are towards the top of the top cards on any given
0: commander's page, but for some reason or another, we're not playing them in our specific brews. Yes. Yeah, we've done a whole episode about cards we don't play, especially for like social reasons. But these are going to be some that we want to dig into for strategical reasons. These are very popular for those given commanders, but the reasons we choose not to put them into our decks and hopefully that can uh, help you figure out cards in, in your decks. about like why you would or would not play things that apparently are really popular, but you want to make that deck your own. This should be interesting to get into. We've got some shout outs to do before we get to it, though. First, I'd like to thank Chase, better known as Mana Curves, for helping editing the show. You
2: can
1: find them on the interwebs at Curves. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a review on your local podcast app. You can subscribe on your local YouTube channels, or you can go to patreon.com slash EDH retcast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. Whether, whatever you want to get, there's a perk for that, which you can get over at patreon.com slash EDH retcast including the coveted weekly patron shout out. And this week we are going to give a very special shout out to Jordan Barrett. Um, He grinned and (laughs) barretted it uh, and went to patreon.com slash edhretcast. And please don't judge how terrible my wordplay. But Jordan, either way, we we appreciate
0: the support. Don't judge our terrible wordplay, Matt. Um our. we open every every episode with a dad joke. Being judged for terrible wordplay is like the, the MO of this show. Let's just be honest with ourselves. That that is very true. So is it par for the course, Jordan. Thank you for fitting in so well already. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Jordan. Okay, guys, let's get into our topic here. We are talking about those popular cards that we don't play, specifically ones that are popular on our commander's pages, but there are strategical reasons why we've been like, hmm, this won't be the case for me and the way that I brew. And, you know, hopefully hearing those different types of discrepancies with the data on EDHREC, hopefully, you know, that can encourage folks out there to, you know, think more critically about the cards that you're putting into your decks too, because, you know, EDHREC is not a prescription. (laughs) Um, EDHREC does not feel that it is a prescription. And finding that individuality uh, to make your deck feel more like yours is really, really important. So Dana, maybe we'll start off with you when it comes to some popular cards that you don't play in one of your decks. Where would you like like to begin
2: so uh, yeah one, one of the things that was a little bit tricky here is because of how i brew i have a lot of kind of oddball ish decks so I, I, I tried to <laughs> stick to ones that i felt like most fit in how i built them what the general kind of consensus is for most people who build that commander so i'll start with Talrand sky summoner um my tara deck doesn't look that different from most talran decks I'm building it with uh, a lot of spells that create tokens, so I can swing at people and kill them with a bunch of drakes. Um, it's just not that dissimilar from the from the typical list. And th- the first spell here that that shows up on I think it's the third most played card in Taloran decks is negate. Um, negate is a fantastic counter spell. One of the blue counter any non creature spell. The thing is, I already have a ton of counter spells in that deck that counter all spells. Um, you know, one of the reasons I tend to run the gate in decks is because of that single blue pip. If you're playing, you know, two colors, especially three, four or five colors, not having to leave two blue mana up is a really big deal. It's not a big deal in a mono blue deck at all. Mm. Um, so I don't feel the need to restrict myself to not being able to hit creatures with the, the counter spells I run. Um, and I just don't have that many counter spells in the deck either. I'm not running like, you know, 12 counter spells. I, I think I have seven in the whole deck. I just don't need to run negate. The the advantages it offers, particularly in the casting cost, aren't ones that really matter in that deck. Um, so, so that's why I'm not playing it there. I, I'm a big fan of the card, and in two-color decks and in three-color decks when I've played them in the past with access to blue, I've ran it. Mono-blue in a deck without a ton of counter spells, it, it just doesn't do what I want it to do.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, Dana, because Negate is high key one of my favorite counter spells. I, I, in fact, in most of my decks, which are not mono blue, uh, would tend to prefer mm-hmm. Negate over counterspell because most frequently I find that the thing I need to counter is someone pointing a removal spell in my direction or trying to get rid of my commander. Yeah. But again, th- like you said, those are multicolored decks. And I imagine for you, the double blue of a regular counterspell, or even the single blue of like a Stubborn Denial, although maybe you wouldn't use Stubborn Denial in that deck because your stuff has lower power, so it wouldn't trigger the Ferocious on that one, but maybe more like an offer you can't refuse, for instance, or other utility things, like I've seen you do some really gnarly things with an Arcane Denial, using that on one of your own spells to turn it into a draw spell, for instance. So I can see why there's more utility that you would get out of those other things when you're in fact not worried about the casting cost.
1: Well, and there's just so many, yeah, like you said, offer you can't refuse. There's a lot of good cards that are effectively either doing something a little bit better for cheaper with maybe a little bit of a downside that's mostly negligible, or there's other counterspells with way more upside that you're going to be able to get benefits out of. I know you don't love three-mana counterspells, Dana, but (laughs) there's a whole bunch of them. And then there's all of those five-mana counterspells, the six-mana counterspells that you also seem to like... um, Overwhelming intellect cards like that some of my favorite cards access denied some mm-hmm. of those types of things If you need a counter spell you can get a lot more than just countering a spell Or if you need to be hyper efficient you have the swan songs you have all mm-hmm. those types of spells out there, too So right. and,
2: and there are some decks. I want that like there, there are like like we said like there's definitely it's one of the first counter spells I reach for mm-hmm. when I'm brewing a, a, a Two-color deck and I would especially do it in a three or four or five, but yeah in, in this deck It just doesn't, the the sweet things it does aren't quite the things this particular deck wants.
0: Yeah. Makes sense to me. Um, I, I can move to one of my examples here. And Dana, I also wanted to stick to the same uh, thing that you were saying there, where like th- there are some ways that we can build a commander that is strategically entirely different than what we're seeing on the EDH Trek page. Like, for example, I have my Mimeoplasm deck where I'm focusing on making weird combinations with its ability. But there are a lot of folks out there, um, that, in fact, the majority of folks out there seem to be building Mimeoplasm more as like an ooze deck. Oops, all oozes. Um, and so like, Me not having a whole lot in common with that, that's just because of a strategical difference overall with the strategy. So I tried to refrain from having any of those examples. There is an interesting card here for a deck that does still have that strategical difference, but I think that this is still going to be um, an interesting talking point for my Thalise Reverent Medium deck. That's my Black-White Tokens deck. And strategically, I've gone for, I'm just going to make a whole bunch of tokens, buff them up, and go smash. More often, what we see on her page is that she can be built a little bit more aristocrats-y, more of those like Bastion of Remembrance, I'm going to ping you for my stuff that dies. But this card, I think, is independent of the strategy. Whether you're playing aristocrats or just all tokens with her, Hour of Reckoning could still be very, very good for that deck. And indeed, 48% of Felice decks are playing Hour of Reckoning, a seven-mana sorcery with Convoke that destroys all non-token creatures. Seems like just absolutely aces for a token deck. But this is one of the more popular cards for Thalys that I am not playing in my deck. Because what I've gone for instead in my deck are things like Marshall Ku or Elspeth, Sun's Champion. Uh, those, those rats that can still provide you with extra tokens and more... More particularly, I want rats that will do something when I have a completely empty board. And one of the issues that I've had with Hour of Reckoning is that it helps you when you're already ahead as opposed to helping you get back into a game when you're behind. And so that's one of the reasons that I have avoided this particular wrath card. Matt, I know that you play a whole lot of tokens. Do you feel similarly about this card or do you you think that I'm off my rocker here? No, I, I get where you're coming from for sure.
1: I, and I'm actually, if, for the same reason, a card that I comes to mind for me too is in my Ovika deck, which is all about making a bunch of tokens and is it colors. So same same strategy, different colors. But I don't really love Battle Him all that much either, because the situations that you pointed out, Joey, it's only really good when I'm already head. Mm. Battle Him makes mana for all the creatures that you control, but you need a lot of creatures in play for Battle Him to be really good. Right. And right. so it only it's very, very powerful for sure. There's a reason that's one of the most played cards in Ovika decks, but it's only good when you're already ahead. And I think that's that's probably an entire category, really, that the three of us, we could talk about probably for days on end is (laughs) cards that are only good when you're ahead, because there are so many cards that people seem to love to play that fit into that category.
0: I mean, there are totally cases where you want those cards that press your advantage to put you into a winning Mm -hmm. situation. And like Hour of Reckoning can be that for tons of players out there i'm very very sure of it it's just that in the way that i've found myself building i'm so dependent on having my board of creatures at all which invites a lot of people to wipe the board <laughs> pretty frequently or even just like deal one or two damage to all creatures in play that having those things getting to keep my one ones in play at all just seems a little bit rough and so strate- strategically i've just been like you know what when i play a uh, what is it necrotic hex where everyone sacrifices six creatures and i get six zombies left over That works out pretty well for me most of the time where I I go from having nothing to having something again and then I'm sort of putting my opponents on the back foot as opposed to pressing an advantage. Like, I have a a whole bunch of pump spells in the deck already that can press an advantage. Uh, So, yeah, just having that different dynamic um, in the tempo, it's, you know, when, when comparing those rads, you really do have to... Determine what the tempo of them is actually going to feel like in game and that can inform which of them would end up being the best for you
2: And I, this came up
0: when I talked about negate with the number of pips too. our of reckoning is three white mana mm. And like
2: depending on how you may have built your deck and how mana intensive it is one person's version of that deck might lean heavily into black stuff. So like you maybe very often can afford to spend three white. If if your deck, it goes in a direction though, it can be very difficult to be able to spend that mana and do the thing you want. Or maybe your deck, the the mana base doesn't, you know, you use white so little, you don't often have three white pips. Like there's a lot of factors for this kind of card, I think that, that really come up and are very, tuned to the particular person who's brewing and playing it.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot of personal preferences that that play into it, especially the board wipes. There's yeah. the, some of those utility cards. You have so much flex room. You can really just
0: find a spot and it, you can almost justify five or six cards that are only filling one slot. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Matt, you mentioned Ovika. Do you have any other examples from that deck too? I do. Uh, so Skirk Prospector is the second most played card in the deck
1: uh, on, on average that's just seeing play so many different places and i don't i don't love it and i don't play it because to me skirk prospector is more of a storm card it's it's a goblin it's one mana you can sacrifice a goblin to make a red mana pretty quick and simple and it's very very powerful but if you're only really trying to do the storm off you're going to make a whole bunch of tokens with ovika's ability maybe you're making token or goblin tokens some other way then you're just going to sacrifice them all for more mana to keep everything going but the strategy wise, especially, I'm not trying to play a storm. I, I like attacking with my tokens. Call me crazy instead of sacrificing them for mana. Uh, <laughs> that's just a whole different strategy if you ask me. And so I like to turn my token sideways for one, but also it only makes red mana. And like Dana, you were just talking about a second ago that my Ovika deck leans pretty heavily into a lot of blue spells. And so being able to make uh-huh. effectively unlimited red mana that doesn't really help me get across the, the finish line so much because a lot of my spells are blue. Yeah, that's one thing I think that um, I, I've
2: really paid started paying attention to as I've kind of gotten, we'll use the term mature versus old. As, <laughs> Seasoned. <laughs> Season. There we go, there we go, yeah, weathered <laughs> um, as a commander player. Like, that makes a big difference, the amount of colored pips in a in a spell, particularly someone like me who's fairly greedy with how many utility lands they run like that makes a big difference and if i'm gonna if if a card is going to have three colored pips and it's casting cost, it better be impactful because it's going to be sometimes very difficult for me to cast.
0: I, I, I was just going to say that, Dana. I was just like, you are like, the, the, I'm, I'm surprised at how often you are still managed to fix your colors despite how many colorless utility lands that you frequently buy. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, but no, Matt, that's a, especially paying attention to the color balance. That is a huge thing to pay attention to there because the way that you build your deck might not immediately be obvious, but you might have a completely different ratio of blue cards to red cards than the traditional ways that Ovika is built, and so that can absolutely change the dynamic and how powerful certain cards can end up being for you so yeah i I totally get it and also just like if you're not really hoping to storm off you're just like here are some goblins they go raw then that also Mm. (laughs) totally makes a whole lot of sense i'm doing that same thing that i mentioned with the lease strategically i'm going a slightly different direction but like the 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 color balances is another thing that you have to pay attention to with how that will affect things
1: yeah it's it's wild to me looking at the top cards for ovika enigma goliath because skirk prospector is number two and then number four is Transcendent Message, which costs four blue and X to cast.
2: Well, in, in talking with the color balance, too, that can change before you realize it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you mm-hmm. just swap out one or two cards every set, so monthly, like <laughs> let's say you do it every third set or something, like even making a few changes a year, you can find yourself having shifted that pip balance in what your spells require without even being aware of it. And suddenly that three mana spell that that cost three of a single color that was easy to cast is no longer so easy. And that, that can get away from you very quickly. And how often does anyone sit and double check that? Like maybe you do when you first brew the deck, but like I, I I'm somebody who probably pays a lot more attention to this minutia than most people. I would say all of us do, given that it's kind of our job. And I, I bet we don't do it nearly that that much. So like it's it can get out of hand and if you're not playing these cards then it's, it's it's easy to not worry about it when you're playing cards that have that one colored pip versus the th- two or three
1: well and, and while we're here i mean this is probably a good opportunity to shout out architect and moxfield and kind of just all those the, the current generation of deck building websites because they've got
0: a great resource to check that at the bottom of pretty much every deck page yeah yeah they're able to check your color balances your average mana curve uh things like that it's very helpful and I, I guess speaking of mana curve, I mean, that's definitely another thing that can slip out of control if you're not paying careful attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, just like your land count, like oh you just you replace, you know, you got a new fancy spell and maybe you'll cut a land for it and then before you know it you only have 32 lands and you're like, huh, I can't cast anything. The same thing can totally happen with uh, you know, gradually I cut a four mana spell and put it in a six mana spell. I've got a five mana spell and put it in a seven and, and things like that. Uh, th- that can also really sneak up on you. That's a journey that I took with my Karazakar deck where I was playing a whole lot of six and seven drops, it turned out, and I really had to scale back on them. And so one of the cards that I scaled back on was the card Death Kiss, which shows up in 59% of Karazakar decks, and which doubles the power of stuff that attacks your opponents, which seems perfect for a deck where I am goading all of my opponent's stuff. That sounds fantastic. But I played maybe a game with this card, and I was like, okay, first of all, this is hard to cast, and I have so many six drops, I need I need to be a little bit responsible with myself. So that was one reason that I removed it. But then also strategically, I kind of noticed that in that deck, I actually didn't want a whole lot of effects that would cause my opponents to die too quickly, I guess. Um, or more particularly that would enable my opponents to KO each other more quickly because when I'm goading my opponents I actually kind of need them to stick around a whole lot for me to use the cards that Karazakar is trying to to draw me when I'm goading all of their stuff so I actually need those folks to stick around for at least a little bit longer as like I guess meat shields so there were a couple (laughs) of reasons why I had to, (laughs) to, to keep that one out of the deck after all
2: yeah and sometimes you don't realize those things until you get a bunch of reps into the deck like there are plenty of cards that you're like oh that i I get why this card's popular until you play it, and you're like why is this card popular (laughs) because once you start getting those wrecks you realize that your your little iteration of that deck or even you know your personal play style or the play group you play most of your games with or something just turns those screws just enough yeah so it doesn't perform in your list the way
1: it's feels like it probably does for most other people i mean we talk about those cards all the time that it's a card that's
0: it's really good for you it's terrible for me though right yeah <laughs> yeah that's exactly it and, and none of these instances i'm saying that anyone else is doing anything wrong for playing these cards that are popular they can totally work out for folks it's just that in this particular case i found that when i cast it i sped up the point that i got to a one-on-one against a single opponent and it turns out that goad is not that great in a one-on-one situation. So I was like, huh, maybe I need to be wiser about when I cast this, or maybe I just need to pay a little bit more attention to my mana curve and I can go for another option in this card slot instead.
2: Well, you know, example here of a a card that I think personal play style and personal brew style makes a difference. if you look at the, the Rekki History of Kamigawa decks in EDH rec, a Goreclaw Terror of Kalsima, Seisma, excuse me, is one of the more popular creatures in that list. Um, three and a green creature spells you cast with power four or greater cost two less to cast. And whenever Goreclaw attacks each creature you control with power four or greater, gets a plus one, plus one, and gains trample until end of turn. Um, I had ran this in my list, at least when it first came out, just to try it out. It just doesn't quite work based on how I play that deck. It, it my my version of that is running a little bit lower to the ground. It kind of plays a little bit like a storm list, and that means that there aren't a ton of creatures in that deck that have power four or greater that I'm casting to take advantage of the cost reduction or to take advantage of giving them trample. Mm. Um. Additionally, the deck kind t- t- kind of tends to win with some kind of an alpha strike, and. Alpha strike is usually something that's already giving all those creatures trample or giving them evasion or giving them some way to punch through where again, Goreclaw's ability doesn't necessarily do me any good. Um, So it's a situation where like I, I get why people are running it, but it doesn't help me in how
1: I've built that particular list. Well, and Dana, it, yeah, the the way that you built that deck too, especially sometimes the way Goreclaw works doesn't, pan out because you're trying to kind of do the same thing only on a different axis where so instead of cost reduction, you have a lot of effects in that wrecky history of common gawa deck that double your mana or triple yeah. your mana right. and generate so much of a greater advantage so that the gore claw that that cost reduction is fine, but you're maximizing it in other ways. And so you don't really need a cost reduction because right. effectively you're reducing the cost in so many other ways on all of your spells, mm-hmm.
0: not just on creatures with power four or greater. Yeah, and, and you're using a whole bunch of other things that also enable you to to get that trample, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, mana sinks, for example, like Ronas the Indomitable and things like that, to make sure that when you do that, as you said, in Alpha Strike, the plus one in trample is at that point a little bit redundant. Um, so, yeah, I can totally see it. Because, again, like the, as you both said, it's very stormy. The Alpha Strikes are going to feel like they kind of came out of nowhere, sort of like when Joey segues into challenge the stats. That also sometimes <laughs> comes out of nowhere. Oh... Merry Christmas, Joey. <laughs> Speaking of redundancy,
1: Dana. No, Matt. We're,
0: we're, we you are a, honoring my segue.
1: <laughs> we have we no, like, this is redundant. Um we have a third person that thinks they can segue into <laughs> challenge of stats. Um per calendar year, only two people are allowed to do this. And so, Joey, I don't I don't know where you're coming up with this type of nonsense where you think that you can just take your Christmas okay, fine. It's in your stocking. You already got it before Christmas. So <laughs> it's an early gift, the early
0: early Christmas present. <laughs> we're we're going to have to make sure that when we do our final episode of the year, we count how many times Joey was actually able to yes, get a segue and sure. to challenge the stats. But the, this, the comments, the comments will let us know. Yeah, but this this was one of them, and I'm proud of me. So we'll be right back to this topic after we challenge a couple of the stats here on Truck because there are a lot of them, but we don't always agree with them. So we'll be right back after this quick break.
2: My challenge this week was sent to us by listener CJ Swarbrick. That's a cool name. (laughs) (laughs) CJ, it is. It's a a mouthful, but uh, CJ says, I find it hard to understand why Exocrine doesn't even appear on the page for Rakdos, Lord of Riots. CJ also says, from experience, I found it to be the perfect finisher in the deck. All you need to do is be a point higher in life compared to your opponents, and you can scale the damage as needed. So Exocrine is a card from the Warhammer 40k decks. It's X, two, and a red for a tyrannid creature. Uh, It's a 2-2, and it has ravenous. So it enters the battlefield with X plus one counters on it. And if X is five or more, you draw a card when it enters. It has an ability called bioplasmic barrage. When Exocrine enters the battlefield, it deals X damage to each player and each other creature. Huh. Um, I, it's a really good finisher, but actually I, I think the, the utility here for this is the fact that it, it can do both of the things you want. Yeah. Um, because you can't cast Rakdos and less an opponent has lost a life this turn and creature spells you cast cost one less for each life your opponents have lost. It's absolutely a really good finisher late in the game when you draw it, but it's also one of those cards that you can cast early in the game just to chump everyone for a little bit of damage so you can then cast Rakdos. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a fantastic finisher, and I think just the utility in the deck of it being able to be something that you both use as a win condition as and as a way to get Rakdos onto the field in the first place makes it the kind of card that absolutely should see more play in
0: than 1% of lists. That is a very, very cool challenge. The, yeah, the fact that Rakdos will just completely demolish the X cost on that. X yeah. cost things in a deck are very, very scary. Yep. That is a very cool challenge. I'm way into it. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit more wholesome with uh, my challenge to stats here. I'm looking at an overplayed card in Sam and Frodo decks. That's the uh, the precon ones, the loyal attendant Sam who's making a whole bunch of food tokens. And this is really just a classic case of a, a card that is suffering from the precon effect. It came in the precon with these, I believe, and so that's why it's seeing play here, but it's it's really not that good. Uh, it's Shire Sheriff, which is a really fun name to say, but it, it it's not a great card to play. Um, Shire Sheriff is a 2-mana two 2-2 two, two halfling soldier with vigilance. When it enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice a token. When you do, you exile target creature and opponent controls until Shire Sheriff leaves the battlefield. So this is showing up in 36% of the over 6,600 uh, 6, uh, Sam and Frodo decks that there are out there. I mean, yeah, you sacrifice the food, you'd get to temporarily lock down something, but this this card isn't great. This, this card is a conditional banisher priest, and banisher priest is also not that great either. So I would go for a more permanent form of removal instead even if it means that you're playing uh, a, a little bit more, I don't know, play a dispatch or something, right? You're making a lot of artifact tokens in that deck because there's so much food going around. Um, that seems like it might be more reliable to me. So Shire Sheriff, we're going to have to uh, lock you up instead um, because I don't think you're doing a good job of, of being the sheriff of that town. So I'd have to say cut that one from the deck.
1: Yeah, worst versions of already like average cards, probably a good opportunity to to reconsider. Um, so I will wrap up our challenge to stats this week with my own uh so this week virtue of courage is a card that i feel like has gotten overlooked in a lot of different decks it is from Wilds of eldraine it is three red red and it's an, for an enchantment but also has an adventure side so the adventure says one in a red for an instant embreath blaze deals two damage to any target quick and simple cool but the enchantment version says whenever a source you control deals non-combat damage to an opponent you may exile that many cards from the top of your library and you may play those cards this turn This is so, so wild to me how powerful it is. And it's not even, it's barely an 8,000 decks. It is such an upside outpost siege type of card with all that, the, the impulse draw, you're able to just crank through your deck. But like nobody seems to be catching on to it. There's there's Perforos decks out there, just decks that are playing Perforos that try to win that way. And yes, you you might be trying to go a little faster than maybe Virtue of Courage lets you be. But things stall out. Things go go wrong all the time. And people just aren't playing Virtue of Courage. There's mm. Torwauki, the younger 4% of Torwauki decks are playing Virtue of Courage. Uh, even in cards from this own set, like Immodane, the Pyrohammer, 46% of Immodane decks are playing Virtue of Courage. That just seems off for some reason. There are so many decks that love to deal non-combat damage, and just none of them are playing Virtue of Courage. This is a very, very powerful draw engine. You're going to be able to get so much card advantage, and you don't even have to worry about milling yourself out because you may exile that many cards from the top of your library, and then you may play those. So it's not a mandatory thing where you sometimes you draw yourself out because you just happen to just draw too many cards and you couldn't opt out. You can totally do that with virtue of courage. So just being able to control when you're impulse drawing for, you know, you, you dome somebody for five damage, that's a whole new hand in so many decks. It is scary how powerful this is. I just think it needs to be reconsidered by so many people. And it's, it's a couple bucks. It is not an expensive card. And it's just, there's so much upside to this. Just give Virtue of Courage another look, people. There's a lot to love here. That is
0: a wild amount of card advantage that this card can
1: give you. I Wild. It's This, this might be, honestly, in my opinion, one of
0: the more slept on cards from Wilds of Eldraine. Yeah, yeah, you you were talking about this card before we started recording, and I was fully like, "I'm sorry, what does this do? Like, like <laughs> do I need to start playing more red decks here? Like, yeah, this this one really surprised me. I absolutely agree." Yeah, it's it's
1: just incredible how powerful it is. There's there's just so much to like. So let's
2: swing this back to talking about cards that we ourselves <laughs> don't play very often. <laughs> um, in in one that I don't play um, in my Gliss of the Trader deck is Mirror Retriever. Um, it's one of the most popular creatures in Glissa the Trader decks. Hmm. Um, and I had a Glissa deck for a lot of years, and I turned it to a Glissa Sunslayer deck. Um, but Glissa's probably my favorite character in Magic, so I decided I'm going to build every Glissa into a deck. and a
0: wild project. Rather
2: than spend a ton of time thinking about it. Right, because like the way I brew decks is just a... Long process, and I didn't want to do that with these three decks. I was the other Glissa decks I was going to make, so I, I i kept them kind of like what you would expect from those particular commanders. The Glissa trader deck is doing artifact shenanigans, recurring things from the graveyard, um, so it doesn't look that dissimilar from the average Glissa the trader list on EDH rack nowadays, um, with the exception of you know primarily Mirror Retriever. Mirror um, Retriever. I think the difference is it tends to be a combo piece. Mm. Um it's a two mana artifact creature. Um when your retriever is put into a graveyard from play return another tar- target artifact card from your graveyard to your hand. So I think this is this is a card that's tended to be to be used to kind of loop things versus being supplemental with Glissa necessarily. Mm. And I'm not doing that. I'm just like running some value stuff I want to recur built around artifacts, but like there's, there's nothing I'm looking to loop in that deck. So Mirror Retriever would just wind up being kind of a redundant piece with Glissite. It's not going to add me anything to how I'm playing that particular deck. So I think this is an example of a piece that's, that's a combo piece. And as someone who just isn't really playing combo, it's not helping me. So it's not in my deck.
0: Yeah, that shows up in fifty three percent of the Glissa decks. i I'm, I find myself curious if you play Scrap Trawler in your Glissa deck, which shows up in sixty four, and again, much like Lisa, it, it will get those artifacts back to your hand. So not playing Scrap Trawler either. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yep. and I imagine it's just a case of like my commander's doing this for me already. I don't need the the this Plan B. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I can I can see that because there are some cases where you don't necessarily need the Plan B, I guess. And uh, th- this kind of segues into one of my uh, decks here as well and a, a popular card for a commander that I'm not playing and that's actually Ancient Green Warden in Titania Protector of Argoth. I've got a Titania deck that's the mono-green commander who gives you elemental tokens when your lands die. An Ancient Green Warden is a very, very cool card that shows up in 53% of Titania decks. It's a six-mana elemental that lets you play lands from your graveyard, love to see that, and it doubles your landfall triggers. So make no mistake, this card's amazing. This card's really, really amazing. But the particular way that I've gone with Titania is so much about sacrificing my lands rather than landfall triggers that Ancient Green Warden would end up amplifying basically my backup plans. Like, I do have Rampaging Baloths in that deck, but it's only there as a backup in case Titania doesn't get to do the thing that she does. And frankly, Titania very frequently gets to do the thing that she does. So even then, I'm just like, I don't, I don't have all that many landfall cards that this card would actually allow me to double up. It's nice that it lets me play stuff in my graveyard. But it's a six mana card, and... I already have so many other effects in that deck that are like half this mana cost that let me get stuff back from my graveyard. Sometimes like I can play a Splendid Reclamation and that gets them back on mass, And those are pretty reliable for me to find in that deck too. So yeah, paying attention to those pieces of redundancy, those backup plans, and whether the cards in your deck are amplifying your backup plans, that's a lesson that I'm definitely taking from these examples that we've got here, Dana. Because you really do have to be careful about whether those cards mm-hmm. are helping your primary focus and the main engine that your commander is doing, and whether you actually need them given how reliable it is that your commander can in fact get away with doing that thing.
1: Yeah, I, I really like that. And that kind of leads into a little bit of the reasons that there's some cards in my Kyler Sigardian Emissary deck that I'm not playing. And mm. if you look at the typical deck, there's a lot of Sigarda cards in there in general. Uh, whether it's Cigar Font of Blessings, where other permanents you control have Hexproof, which they're in there to help protect all your humans. Angel of Glory's Rise, uh, which enters the battlefield, exiles all zombies, and you return all humans from the graveyard to the battlefield. There's a lot of cards like that that I just, I personally don't really think they're worth playing because either they're in, it's in a weird situation where you're so far behind it may not be really doing a whole lot, or you're protecting something that you already have enough redundancy there that... Any creatures you want to play in a Kyler deck, you probably want them to be humans. So playing more angels, it waters down your deck. And I think that's a a really, really valid concern for some players is, are you watering down your deck by putting in some of these support cards that maybe don't, they kind of do a
0: little bit of what you're trying to do, but it's not doing it in maybe the best way. I mean, Matt, this is absolutely, yeah, an off-type creature in one of those types of decks. Like, yeah, that, that that's a, a thing that I experienced too. Um, Gisa and Giralf is really popular, shows up in nearly 70% of Wilhelm decks, but that's a human and so I don't play it in my in my will help deck I try to keep as many non-zombies out of that deck as possible because I'm playing stuff like zombie apocalypse which kills all humans or I'm playing stuff like kindred dominance which would destroy everything that isn't a zombie so yeah there's a real opportunity cost to playing something that is slightly off type even if objectively it does support that strategy there's a way in which it is actually you are missing out on certain other synergies that you could be doing and I, I have to imagine that's definitely the case for Kyler because Kyler gives all of your humans such a huge pump that having a creature in play that doesn't get that pump could be the difference in whether or not you're able to KO an opponent. Yeah. A creature that doesn't get the pump, but also doesn't feed the pump either.
1: Yeah. That's just such a a weird thing. And so we were talking also before the show about the new Hawkball of the Surging Soul, the the Merfolk pre-constructed deck from uh, Rivals of Ixalan. There's an evolution sage in there and I'm just kind of like, well, okay, I guess. Yeah. There's like a plus one plus one theme in there. But for the most part, it's all merfolk. And all those merfolk, if you want to talk about a snowbally type of, of creature type there, <laughs> merfolk is definitely probably the peak of once you the ball gets rolling, it's very, very hard to stop. And evolution sage is fine, but I really don't think it's worth going off the creature type in order to kind of get a cool proliferate whenever you play a land type of effect.
2: And sometimes too the card just doesn't feel right. Like that, <laughs> sure. That's not a quantifiable thing, but like I, I guarantee we've all had decks where you put this card in there and something just feels like it's off. You'll draw it and you're like, this isn't the, quite the right time to use it. And then you realize every time you draw it, it feels that way.
0: Well, it, yeah, there, there's something, well, and that can happen on two axes, right? Like there's, yeah. hmm, strategically, I'm struggling to find the, the window to play this, but then also emotionally. Like yeah. there are cards yeah. that emotionally it feels like, <laughs> yeah. like here's my all unicorns deck and then you play a Crater Hoof Behemoth and I'm just like, yeah, I'm not buying it. Like it just like emotionally I would feel like this is wrong. This, this just feels wrong to me, you know? It, it also has that access to it as well. So I, I totally feel, yeah. Well, speaking of cards that don't
2: quite feel right in decks, um, Anger never feels good in a deck because it has this weird giant angry baby art that, I always, I always find <laughs> um, but more specifically, I, I have an Agnes, uh, dragon's lash deck. And while my particular version of the deck is mono red, it, it doesn't differ that much from a deck. That's actually a Junda version of that deck in terms of the strategy. Mm. Um, So when I was looking at the list of of popular cards here that I'm not playing, I kind of ignored the ones that weren't red. And the first creature that jumped out at me that people are playing a lot of in that list that I'm not playing is Anger. Um, Now, forgetting the the, the art for a second, um, (laughs) Anger is a card that gives all of your creatures haste. And this is a deck where the commander pretty much wants you to run creatures with haste. Uh, And I understand that maybe there's a couple of bodies in that list that you are going to want because they do something really powerful. Magna Brazen Outlaw is one that lets you sacrifice the treasures that Agnes makes to go tutor up some kind of a probably Wind Condition style dragon. Um, But how many of those are you actually going to be running that you need to give them haste? I, I feel like if you have to give haste to a bunch of creatures in a deck that wants to run hasty creatures, probably just running the wrong creatures in the first place. It doesn't feel right to me for a bunch of reasons. And I'm not running because I don't need to. I'm because my deck is built around hasty bodies, and I, even if I wanted to run one or two or three that didn't have haste. I still don't think I could justify a deck slot just to give those couple of bodies the ability to swing the turn I played him.
0: What about things like Urabrask the Hidden as well, which also gives haste but does impede your opponents? Are those in your considerations pile? Or... And
2: I am running those because they do the extra thing. Like, he, the, like I can kind of, ign- I can ignore the fact that it gives my creatures haste and still be like, oh. That it it doesn't feel like it's a wasted line of text on the card because that's really all anger does. So without that anger is just a body. Whereas Urbrask is still slowing my opponents up. It's still doing something and it doesn't feel like having that redundant text on there doesn't accomplish anything
0: gotcha well well and so to me i'm just like well anger would definitely be really good if the deck is making a whole lot of tokens and then giving those tokens haste mm. but i'm not seeing that on Agnes's page yes yeah so uh i'm uh, so why am i bringing it up even <laughs> That does it doesn't apply here i see the the extra thing as like the argument for urbrask makes a whole lot of sense to me too though so matt i think your last one you want to talk about was okima and kazer what's what's the uh
1: the oddball card there that you aren't running that everyone else likes well, th- I mean, there's two of them, really. One is a new card that I-, I just haven't had a chance to really pick up. But also, we talked about redundancy a little bit. Ozlet the Shattered Spire, just one of those put extra counters on things. I already have a- several of those types of effects in there. So that just kind of didn't really fit. And it wasn't really worth justifying, like, a- spending 10 bucks on a card that mm. I already had, like, three different copies of. Mm-hmm. But also, Cold Ice Selkie is a card that I've I used to like it five six years ago but i feel like cold ice selkie in general is one of those cards that just the world to me passed up what cold ice selkie could be doing in a lot of different decks and so that one i it got cut because if i want to put plus one plus encounters one on a creature why not just put it on my commander that's going to win me the game instead of a utility creature that like doesn't really have any built-in protection Island Walk is fine, but like to me, Eye Selkie was great several years ago, but I think just kind of got power crept out, and I don't think people are really
0: updating their decks to reflect that. Uh, Matt, I will let you know that there are 79% of Kumena Merfolk players <laughs> and Otrimi Mutate players that are just like so mad that you would discourage people from their, their favorite little draw cards merfolk boy. That's fine. But those are different strategies than the thing that you are talking Completely about. Completely different strategies. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're talking about a strategy where Ukima wants to be as big as possible. And so it, it's a little bit like the Rafik problem, right? Where mm-hmm. like Rafik gives your stuff double strike when they attack alone. And yeah, you could put other stuff into the deck that will have interesting attack triggers or in- interesting things when they attack an opponent. But most likely the most important thing for you to give double strike to is your command or damaging Rafik, and I can imagine that's a similar yeah. thing that you're running into with Ukima. Yeah the, the only time that
1: something else is getting double strike when you have Rafik out is because Rafik has summoning sickness and you happen to not have Swiftfoot boots in play. <laughs> that's go. the only time that something else is getting double strike. It's the same thing like in, in my Ukima and Kazur deck the only time I'm putting plus one plus one counters on a creature that isn't Ukima is because Ukima isn't in play yet. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah there you go. Uh, so I, I have one final example that I'm kind of curious to hear from you guys. Uh, I think this is probably my my more contentious example <laughs> amongst them. Um, I, I play a lot of black. We know this about me. Joey loves to play black. The necromancy is strong with this one. Um, I have a mono black Sir Conrad deck. And Sir Conrad is um, annoying and, and just a, a truly an, a busted card. Like, why did they keep putting words on? He does so, damage in so many ridiculous ways. But there's a card that I don't play in that deck that's very, very popular, and in fact, not just popular in Conrad. It's a very, very popular card for mono black in general. I think it's showing up like 18% of decks that can play it, and that's Feed the Swarm. Feed the Swarm is a sorcery in black that can destroy target creature or enchantment, but you'll lose life equal to that thing's mana value. And this is one of the few reliable ways that black can actually get rid of an enchantment. But I am not playing it in Conrad, and I'm curious to hear your reactions about this. Particularly the reason I've chosen not to do it is because I'm kind of like, listen, if they have it, they have it. And if they don't have it, I, I probably got this. And and this is sort of like a, a level of play that I've embraced where I don't want to, Matt, I think you said like dilute the reliability of my strategy mm-hmm. by uh, planning for certain bad conditions to be there. If they're there, I'm losing anyway. Like, even if I were to remove the rest in peace that is going to be the bane of my graveyard deck because it's doing all of the exile-y stuff and stopping my death triggers... I'm kind of like, if they've got it, me playing those ways of getting out of that bad scenario, the, the way that that deck plays and the metas or the the games, the pods that I play it, are already moving so quickly that the game is over by the time I would try to remove something anyway. So I'm kind of just like, I've adopted a, if they have it, they have it, uh, sort of attitude about that particular card in that particular example. I'm not saying that every mono black player out there should do this because Feed the Swarm is a very, very good card if you need to destroy enchantments. It's just the particular pace of play for this particular deck is what's informed my decision there. And I'm wondering if you guys feel that way about any of those other backup plans where you're just like, I'm not even gonna plan for contingencies because that's just not the tempo that this is going for. Do you feel that way too or no?
2: Um, I I think you, yeah, definitely. Um, And maybe not with the that isn't a card that I've done it with. I I, I tend to run Feed the Swarm in situations where I don't have an alternative, but I I do think you just don't have enough slots in a deck to plan for everything. not saying you shouldn't try, but there's also some situations where you just have to, like, take that 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 look of, like, well, if this happens, I'm just going to lose, and that's fine. Rather than run a mediocre solution to a problem, you're better off just running good solutions to other problems that you do have good solutions to, and accept the fact that once in a while you're going to get blown out. Yeah. And, and, and you'll offset that by having good games the other times when you're not faced with that one particular problem
1: and a lot of times too i would say that a, some of the cards that become like a universal problem like we're talking about here like joe you mentioned rest in peace i would argue or not maybe not argue but i would think that for the most part rest in peace isn't really played at the mid to lower tier tables it, yeah it's probably cedh more focused and then the higher power tables where like that's kind of more understood that's what you're going for or blood moon i think is a similar type of card blood moon absolutely is probably the right card to play in a lot of different decks but kind of the social contract is pushed out i think that that's kind of pushed out some of those cards that require you to get into like a deep puzzle solving type of mindset with some of your answers that you're playing So you're not really being punished as much for it anymore as you may be used to have when kind of the, the social aspect of the format wasn't near as fleshed out. And we've kind of talked about that with Back to Basics is another type of card that I think we used to see a little bit more across all given tables. And maybe it's kind of centralized itself towards the higher power tables now that kind of just Players are a little more equipped to kind of socially handle these situations than they were before.
0: I mean, Matt, you, you say that, but, like, my mom plays rest in peace in her deck against me. So, like, I, I don't know what to tell you. But I like <laughs> your mom, so that's
2: probably why. Like, yeah. So so let's say it's not a specific problem for Joey and it's just a general problem. So, like, let's say the, mm-hmm. the person with multiple planeswalkers in her deck drops a doubling season. That's going to be an issue. Again, maybe that's a situation where you're just like, well... Someone, that's an issue for everybody. Not That is you, right? Like that's going to be a problem for the other two players at the table as well. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe that's a situation where you're just like, I can't deal with it. I'm never going to be able to deal with it. I will be able to deal with creature threats. So you guys need to deal with enchantment threats. <laughs> sure. I, I think that's a reasonable response. I think sometimes in a deck, because you're like, I just can't do all the things. I'm going to focus on doing the best job I can with the things I can do a good job on and I'd better hope you guys can handle the other things, and if, if you all can't, then maybe I lose that game
0: and we play a new one. Uh, yeah, you're sort of assuming the title of Delegator <laughs> it feels like maybe a, yeah. your solution there. I also kind of feel like, in particular, like the way that Conrad especially goes is just like, listen, my strategy is I know I have to kill the people who could <laughs> drop a in Bees right. yeah. before yeah. they get the chance yeah. to do it, and that's really my only out. It's just like, full throttle, I'm going all in on this, and if it doesn't work out, it super doesn't work out, it will blow up in my face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that just sort of feels like, to remove the player is actually the best chance that I have uh, rather than trying to, and, and I've, you know, I played all the graveyard decks, so I've experienced this a lot. Um, and and folks sometimes will messaging, me, they'll message me asking like, you know, what can I do to save my graveyard from being exiled? And my attitude is pretty similar to the feed the swarm thing in, in this particular example. Where I'm just like, if they exile, it's gone. And I'd rather focus on having the ability to rebuild and refill that graveyard rather than trying to prevent them from taking away what was there. Because, it's just like trying to plan for contingencies A, B, C, and D is just going to dilute the ability for Plan A to be able to get off the ground in the first place. To me, absolutely, um, might not be an attitude that everyone out there shares. This was just one particular example that I wanted to mention. That this very popular removal spell I'm not playing in Conrad. I'm playing it in a lot of other decks. It's in my will-held deck. Yeah, like I, there are definitely cases where being able to destroy enchantments when you're not usually able to. Yeah, that's really good. This was just a particular one where the tempo was something I wanted to pay attention to, and I hope that that is helpful for people who are listening.
2: In the way I would phrase that joey is it's like you could you, you've just focused on solving a b and c and, and like d can be someone else's issue
1: yeah you, you can't play for literally every single situation there's just the format is just way too big for that these yeah. days yeah yeah uh, play for what you're gonna see <laughs> yes. Meta, yeah. maybe metagame a little bit if you have to but like th- you're never gonna have every single answer for every situation just Sometimes somebody's going to win and sorry, it's not you or well, sorry, it's not me. I should say, but like, <laughs> you, yeah, you, you can't always have every situation handled.
2: So I think as we kind of reach the end of the particular examples uh, we have, because the reality is these cards probably aren't going to be the ones that people listening right now aren't playing in their deck. Right. But I almost guarantee that if you go through the list, there's going to be ones that you aren't playing that are very popular on the list as well. Um, I I think it is a useful exercise to take a look at it though and and really think about why you aren't running those cards and what your reasons are because I almost guarantee people that aren't running them have pretty good reasons. And, and 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 i think knowing those things helps you just be a better deck builder in general knowing why you're not doing the things you're doing and and really having clarity of
0: thought and purposefulness about why you're brewing the way you're brewing i think is useful that that's exactly it like i, I think probably a whole lot of folks have had the experience of like looking through like they just cut a card from their deck and then maybe they go and browse an EDA track page and they're like okay but it's showing up in like 80 percent of those decks am <laughs> i the crazy one And <laughs> like it didn't work for me why is it working for everyone else uh but like yeah just like Eduard, no, the feel feel that children it's it's are pers- wrong, Joey. It is the children that are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's just like, no one who works for EDHREC thinks that EDHREC is a prescription. like Go with the thing that feels right to your deck, and that is going to be a you Mm -hmm. thing. It is just a resource of like, oh, here are some cards that could be interesting to play. It seems like a whole lot of people do. But also, those little discrepancies are going to be one of the things that makes the deck feel a little bit more like it's yours. And being critical of the things that you're doing and finding the ways that bring you the most joy in the game is the whole point of all of it anyway, right? So... Yeah, yeah don't don't feel like you're the one who's going crazy uh yeah play what makes you happy Segway what makes you happy uh Segway what makes you happy matt yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> we can wrap up the show right here if we really want to that like that's not against the rules so like if we wanted to tell people where they can find us on social media uh that's totally allowable you can find me for example pretty much any social media platform at Mathimus 55 that's m-a-t-h-i-m-u-s-5-5 um it's pretty easy. We can segue however we want to segue. Dana, would you like to segue us out too?
2: I mean, sure. I might as well. We're, we're trying different things. I mean, for example, you could find me on the interwebs at Dana Roach. I am maybe running articles for Trek and Commander's Herald. And I guess it's possible you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash
0: Matthew Cinnamon Toast Crunch Morgan. I'm so <laughs> since I got my segue in this episode, you're taking it away at the end of the episode. Just, I it just felt right to do in the moment, um, and it's Matthew Captain Crunch Morgan. <laughs> And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz online, most likely being a fool on Instagram or something like that. And you can find the cast at EDH everywhere online. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDH at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for their fantastic work in the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be right back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck Your Deck before you wreck your deck.